Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radio Land. It is a split-screen edition. You would think that we were in Studio A at Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., your nation's capital. However, we're spread all across the country, at least the eastern seaboard. Uh, I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. I am broadcasting from my home office down in the space coast of Florida, uh, which, by the way, uh, beautiful, beautiful launch this morning. Congratulations to team orion for having a successful launch of the crew abort uh module great great vision great view by the way this morning uh joining us from maryland he is the former biden political operative and a bar certified attorney in the great state of maryland and washington dc he's the one we know is dan lipner hello daniel howdy justin and joining us from the base state of massachusetts he is the former huff post contributing writer he is also the author of several books including American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. And joining us from an undisclosed location in Northern Virginia, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He served at last count under four presidents. He is the one we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us, keeping us honest, the only person in Studio A right now who, uh, in a very lonely Studio A there at Podcast Village, Rob Ford, the engineer. Rob, how I'm, you doing, sir? I'm looking at four empty microphones right now. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> it's sad. Uh, well, we will be back in studio next next uh, episode, but we got a lot to talk about. Um, you know, I hate to start off on a on a on a solemn note, but but what is happening on the southern border is nothing less. We've called it a humanitarian crisis ad nauseum here on this show, but it is it is now become just a humanitarian tragedy uh it, the the role has been going since reports came out of clint texas and the border patrol station there of the just horrible conditions that they have some of these uh refugees migrants locked into uh but what really really set a fuse on fire about this was a picture that was published nationally or published on the wires of AP. It was actually taken by a uh, Mexican photojournalist of a, uh, of a migrant trying to cross the Rio Grande river with his 22 month old daughter. Uh, his young daughter and him can be seen in this, in this just, you know, you know there, there are certain photographs that you see uh, you know, like, the young man holding Bobby Kennedy's head after he was shot by Saran Saran. Everybody pointing at the rooftop there in Memphis after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, this is one of those pictures that really just heart-wrenching, just, just stabs you in the gut. Uh, and 
it, it and it really fired up the new discussion on immigration. Uh, the, the, the big part of it is it has now become what started off as finger pointing on, uh, you know, on immigration issues. Uh, the White House made it just an ugly, ugly view of how immigration policy should be worked. It, it, it's 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 just a quagmire at this point, but it, it's something that we need to discuss. <clears throat> uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. Uh, you know, after seeing that picture, I mean, that obviously got Americans, including um, including Republicans on the Hill, siding with some Democrats, saying, "Look, we've got to be humane about this. This is not who we are." Uh, do you think that that picture alone, along with the reports coming out of the southern border, out of the border patrol stations, is that enough to start driving some Republicans into the humanitarian realm versus the strict enforcement realm? If 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 you weren't paying attention, you didn't notice that a four point five billion dollar emergency appropriations bill passed the House and the Senate last week. That didn't happen overnight. Um, they, they've, been, they've been arguing and working on this thing for, uh, for a couple of months. Finally, you got both sides uh, trying to figure out how to deal with the agreed-upon humanitarian crisis. The Democrats have gotten themselves into a, into a, into kind of a, uh, an, an odd position by saying there's no crisis, there's no crisis, uh, the numbers coming in are really low, and then it turned out they were climbing and climbing, um, and and the, the humanitarian challenges were and continue to be enormous. Um, the, the, the picture showed up right at the crucial time, and probably if it had any impact on anybody, it had an impact on on Democrats in the House because they passed a bill that had all this money with a with a variety of special restrictions associated with it. The Senate had passed a bill, 88 to 8, clearly a big bipartisan bill, um, which it substituted for the House bill. And then the bill went back to the House and a bunch of moderates said to, to the leader, we're going to vote for the Senate bill call up the Senate bill. And and that set the liberals uh, uh, ablaze in, in the House. Um, but that was the bill that passed. Whether that photo had some impact or not, I don't know. They wanted to get out of town. Um, they wanted to get on to other things. Um, you know, the photo, the photo is, is, is a reminder that it's real human beings that are down there. The, the circumstances in that particular case, you know, though interesting, aren't that important. The image is, uh, is so powerful and, and so tragic. But we, we've got more, a lot more money now, but we're still struggling with this flood of humanity and, and trying to figure out how to how to manage it and be humane about it without right. simply saying, right. come on in, go wherever you want. And right. that's Dan, not what the American people want either. Right. Dan Lipner? Okay, so first, no rational, real politician, and those caveats are important, 
really believes in opening the borders, let everyone come in. However, yes, the money issue is absolute, and there are a lot of people coming in because of the issues that are going on in Central America. The idea that those pictures played a role, absolutely they did. They pushed the Senate along the way saying, we do not want this as a political issue that includes Republicans in the next campaign cycle. That doesn't do anyone any favors. However, the issue between the Senate version and the House version is principally principally upon the restrictions that it would put upon the administration. A very, very legitimate fear that the Trump administration will misuse the money that is being appropriated for the, those immigrants and those people seeking asylum is a credible fear since this president has already shown his desire to use money that has been allocated for other purposes in a way that he himself chooses, not that any expert nor any elected politician actually sees as the purposes for those, those monies. So that is an actual real issue. However, and this actually dovetails into the Supreme Court. The fact that a lot of those Democrats who were elected in red districts, and this is in the House, those are mostly the pe- people who defected uh, as far as you support the Senate bill, they themselves have to get reelected in red districts. So that matters, and that's actually the political reality that's at play. Richard Pino? Yeah, and that, that actually the, third, the two things came to my mind. First was the, the uh, Saigon execution, the famous photo by photographer Eddie Adams of a guy taking a gun and just essentially shooting somebody. And then you could actually see, you know, you could see the actual photograph, and I think it really had a, had a huge effect on, you know, the uh, opposition to the Vietnam War and eventually Lyndon Johnson not running for re-election in 68. And the other one was Somalia in 1992 when the media started to show the coverage of um, what was going on in Somalia. It eventually effectuated George H.W. Bush to send troops into Somalia. And then a, year, and then a couple of years later, there was a shot of the Somalis with a U.S. troop, and they were dragging them through the streets. And that was the, you know, the opposite of it. And then people immediately said, you know, bring troops home, bring troops home. But I definitely agree with the point in terms of the politi- politically that you're right. There are very many red state Democrats, and every Republican is going to try to is going to try to style every Democrat as somebody who wants quote unquote open borders. And I can see Donald Trump's, you know, certainly tweeting that that they want they want open borders and more crime. And I think they're very, they have to be very um, careful on this. You know, folks like. Um, like AOC and Alicia Presley and some of the more liberal members come from very liberal districts, and they don't. The only possible way they could ever lose re-election is in primary. So, but I think in order to, for the House, to, for the Democrats to stay in a majority, and Nancy Pelosi certainly knows this, they have to have a more moderate. They have to basically make make sure that they're not um, that they're not styled as being for open borders. Right, Alan Moore. <clears throat> You know, there's this has been a, a, a very sensitive and delicate subject for years now, and it's just come to a head. Obviously, it's been almost highlighted since uh, President Trump assumed office back in uh, uh, twenty uh, in, in twenty sixteen. The question now becomes: Is how does the federal government balance humanitarian and enforcement of laws? Alan, I think we lost Alan. Sorry, about, sorry about that. Sorry about no, no. I'm I'm back. Sorry. Um, uh, trying to trying to be respectful of <laughs> the mute button. Um, the the uh, <laughs> what, 
where it has to start is with a president with knowledge, a heart, and a willingness to lead uh, on, on moral issues. Sadly, we don't have that. So uh, we we have a, a president who chooses to demonize desperate people who come into the United States, many of whom are driven more by economics than anything else, I would warrant. And I've spent a lot of time looking at this, which is not to say that most of these situations have some level of fear and some level of economics. Um, but but the fact of the matter is we cannot take all of Central America into the United States. So what do we do? We have a president who calls together. Ideally, we have a president who says, what kind of consensus can we, Democrats and Republicans, faith-based people, citizens of goodwill, border states, northern states, what can we do to have some control over our border and a massive amount of compassion for people in need and a willingness to figure out how to keep people from wanting to flee in the first place? It's multifaceted. It's complicated. It's expensive. And what, sadly, we don't have some uh, a, a leader who will do that. He creates this divide that pushes the Republicans one way, Democrats the other, even though many of them are struggling with uh, with the position they're left in. I can't believe that when the, at the debate, uh, the, the, the second night, the group of 10 were asked, how many of you would provide uh, health services to illegal immigrants? And they all raised their hands. Um, and and we do provide minimal health services at the border, but the impression was, sure, serve them, um, which is a which is I think not a position. It's one of the problems Dan talked about of a yes and no question or a, or, a, or a single answer question. Um, most Americans would rather we spend our scarce health resources on people who are already here and who are citizens who are hurting, rather than to say. Oh, these hundreds of thousands, the hundred thousand plus per month now trying to come in uh, moves to the to 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 the right. top of the list. So, right. but we don't demonize them. We come together and we say, where can we agree? What what kind of numbers? What kind of process? Is it illegal to cross um, uh, without a clearance or not? Another issue that came up in the debates. Um, where can we keep them? Can we can how do we get them to stay where 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 they were born? How can we use our partnership with Mexico? They're complicated issues. Right. Right. Screaming right. for compassionate presidential leadership, which we do not have. Rich Rabino, your thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. Certainly the president is using it as a is using it as a wedge and he knows how to galvanize his base. It's not an issue that I think he particularly felt strongly as strongly before this election. You know, you listen to him going back to even going back to 2000, he was criticizing Pat Buchanan for being too tough on immigration. He said that the, he was criticizing Mitt Romney and John McCain back in 2012 for being too tough on immigration. It's just something that he found. He figured he'd be able to galvanize a lot of people. It's actually kind of like George Wallace. Um, when George Wallace first ran for governor of, of Alabama, he had this, you know, he had the support of the NAACP. He was for civil rights, then he lost that election. So he runs for governor two, four years later, and he says, you know what, I'm going to become a segregationist. 
So he becomes a segregationist, and that becomes a flagship issue, and that puts him on the national stage. I think it's the same thing with Donald Trump. As I say, the only issue he really cares about is tariffs. Uh, but Dan Lipner, you know, it, it, it's funny because you know when when we hear the rhetoric coming out of the White House on this issue, uh, we hear that you know Donald Trump has been more aggressive on immigration. We hear Donald Trump uh, is. Oh, we we got feedback there. <laughs> That's Trump. Whoa. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Uh, we we've got. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we've heard that uh, the, the White House talk about how they are, in fact, uh, tougher on immigration. They are tougher on uh, deportation. They're tougher on all these. But yet we look at the numbers. We look at the history, you know, not, not to say that they put up the cages or put up the detention uh, facilities in some of these Border Patrol areas, but it was the Obama administration under their uh, under their Secretary of uh, Homeland Security, Secretary Napolitano, that actually put the cages up in some of these facilities to deal with some of the overflow. I'm not saying that they designed them to put them, you know, put kids and babies and, and families in cages, but the Obama administration in many instances had a tougher stance on immigration. We don't hear about that. Where's the, where's the confusion and what's the reality on this, Dan? Well, the simple point is the difference is the humanity. Um, the Obama administration absolutely had a very strong position against people coming into the country illegally. However, that wasn't the only issue at play. And also they had a legitimate desire not to try to scare people away based on having horrendous approaches to immigration once they got here but instead a legitimate approach to actually controlling our borders. That is a huge difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Now, I understand them trying to conflate some of the issues that are going on between the two, but it simply is a non-comparison. Uh, Alan Moore, do you agree with that? No, no not, 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 the way he, not the way Dan stated it. Um, uh, and it and it didn't start with Obama. It it started with Clinton. I think that that his uh, third or fourth uh, uh, State of the Union address, um, uh, he made it, he spent a lot of time talking specifically about uh, about immigration, about the need to control our borders, about how people shouldn't assume that they could come here and stay and and receive benefits. Um, and and uh, and that was part of uh, part of his narrative and part of the policy that uh, that was followed in the in the Clinton years and then the Bush years and then the Obama years. Um, what the, the big difference, as I see it, is not it, it was in was in the rhetoric that led then to some particularly draconian. And highly controversial, rightly so, uh, policies. But but if 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 President Trump uh, had had the interest or the decency uh, to not demonize, um, but instead try to say this problem isn't going away, let's work on this together. Um, the, the the there would still be a lot of people. But it wouldn't be as divisive, as ugly, as nasty 
and and lead to uh, all, all the accusations. But 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 you know I don't I I don't I don't think that Obama did it did it right and and Trump did it wrong as much as uh, uh, other than um, the 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 way that he talked about it. But he right, was very right. tough. He deported many right. more people than the than the, than, than than we have so far uh, right. in, in, in the Trump administration, which is just really kind of odd and strange. Right. Having having said that, some of the ugliness of 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 what what the president's uh, rhetoric has done has created this sense of urgency down in Central America. Oh my right. gosh, the borders are going to close. Get there now before right. it's too late. And, it, you know, and Richard Bino, oh, yeah. yeah, Richard Bino, we got one minute left. Last word to you. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you go back, actually, 1994, Pete Wilson, the governor of California, is running for re-election. He's down by about 20 points. He decides to champion Proposition 187, which greatly restricts um, benefits to illegal immigrants. Some, like Bill Bennett, the former education secretary, George W. Bush, the governor of Texas, come out against it. Wilson wins re-election. Bill Clinton then piggybacks off that and on his State of the Union addresses starts talking, starts talking harshly about, about immigration. 1996, he signs the Illegal Immigration Reform Act of 1996, and, give, and it became a, it became a huge issue. And ever since then, the rhetoric right. has been has the rhetoric has just continued to escalate and escalate. And this is the point where we are now. Right. Uh, one word answers because we got 30 seconds left before the music comes on. Uh, is this the beginning? Did this picture fire up, or is this passing of the emergency spending bill for the southern border crisis? Is this the point where we start seeing bipartisan support on humanitarian solutions and the enforcement of laws? Dan Littner, yes or no? Rich Rubino, yes or no? Yes. Alan Moore? It started before this, but this assists that effort. Okay. And... I'm assuming Dan Lipner will say yes, because the correct answer is yes, it will. Okay. Those bills, those being, bills were going to pass regardless. It, so. yeah, true, true, true. Okay, uh, that being the case, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, because we were so busy looking at two days of Democratic debate. The president went to the G20 summit over in the Far East, and, uh, yep, that happened. We'll be back in uh, about two minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom
from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Well, the only one apparently in Studio A right now seems to be Rob the Engineer. He's kind of holding down the fort to a kind of lonely Studio A there, but we appreciate it. We we can see him on the camera, which is always good. Thank you for holding down the fort, And I appreciate you, Justin. (laughs) Sounds like like a scene from Letterkenny. Anyway, uh, Canadian humor there if you didn't catch that one. Hey, uh, in case you got lost in the fog of Democratic Palooza 2020, uh, our president went to G20 summit over in Japan over the uh, week, over the course of four days in the weekend. Uh, during the course of that, he had meetings with several of the Asian PAC players, uh, including uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan, the South Korean, uh, the South Korean president. Uh, and, and, and as well as the other members of the G20. But real news, there were so many news bites and so many news highlights that we need to talk about. But let's talk about the six-foot blonde in the room, that being Ivanka Trump, who draw a lot of either criticism or support over the fact that not only did she go there, but she kind of interjected herself into the diplomatic process, some say. Uh, there are awkward pictures of her in a me in a kind of standing around at a cocktail party type situation with uh, the French President Macron, the head of the IMF, uh, Christine Lagarde. Uh, I forget who else was in that picture, but uh, and and there's all of a sudden Ivanka Trump in, in the discussion. Is this a big deal? Let me go to you, Richard Bino, first. I mean, we've never seen the child of a seated president be involved this dramatically but this is really outside the norm oh no absolutely but you know i mean for that matter you can say the same thing about you know jared kushner um you know essentially essentially drawing up the plans for the middle east peace process i mean um it's just it's absolutely it's outlandish and it really is out of the ordinary and i can't really picture at least any modern administration that would have a child that would have this, that would have nearly the only close would be maybe Amy Carter when they asked Jimmy when Jimmy Carter said something to the effect of you know I was talking about nuclear war and I asked my daughter Amy. Yeah, <laughs> is, is it, that's an awesome that's an awesome reference, uh, Richard. You know, you know, is it is it fair to say that she was unwelcome, out of place? Uh, it was inappropriate. Uh, inappropriate, yes, but in terms, at least overtly, I mean, if somebody does it, you know, you're supposed to be at least, you're supposed to be as diplomatic as possible, so you, certainly you welcome her, and she's part of the president's family of the, you know, most powerful nation on earth, so um, at least I don't think anyone's going to actually be saying anything negative in public, but certainly I'm sure that they're thinking in private, but then again, you know, a lot of these, there are a lot of, certainly autocratic countries where, I mean, that's certainly, that's how the system works. I mean, look at North Korea. I mean, why is Kim Jong-un in power? Not because, you know, he was governor of a, he was governor of, of Pyongyang and then moved his way up. It's because, you know, he was the son of the, of the dear leader. Right. Alan Moore, are, are we being too harsh on Ivanka Trump on this or uh, should the administration know better? Well, the administration doesn't know better, but we have come to expect and in a way accept 
uh, her role and Jared Kushner's role. Um, I, I was in, which isn't to say that it's a good idea, but it's not the disaster that we would have thought it was. Um, so I think it's important not to overreact. Um, I was intrigued with Rich's reminder of Amy Carter telling her dad that (laughs) nuclear proliferation was the big deal. But I'm also remembering, but I'm also remembering that, uh, that John Kennedy had his brother, Bob, as the attorney general, um, which was an even bigger deal and an even more controversial piece of nepotism, if you will, um, which uh, is not allowed anymore. Although that would be interesting if the president decided he wanted to make Jared or his daughter uh, a cabinet secretary of some sort, um, what what would happen? It it was was not – I don't like it, okay? Let me make that very clear. I think it's a bad idea. Alan, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt real quick. What message does this send to our foreign partners? They've seen it. They're used to it. She's been around. Jared's been around. Jared has these special assignments. People realize he's the guy that the president has charged with these responsibilities. We don't have a choice. We don't get to say, no, you're the son-in-law. You don't have the kind of background and experience. They're going to say, wait a minute. These kids probably have more experience than the president himself. So, He's, they don't get to pick and choose who they deal with when we send somebody to represent the U.S. It behooves us to send knowledgeable, competent, experienced people. Our president sometimes does, oftentimes does not, doesn't see a downside. And uh, as, far as, our, as far as our partners, our allies, or our adversaries, they're going to sort of take what we give them. And um, so I wish across the board we have higher quality representation in some of these very sensitive things. In some cases, I think we do. And in other cases, we don't. Here's right. a, a couple of examples where we don't, right. Right. but it, it it's what we're used to. It's not about right. It, right. just a, a, a daughter and son-in-law. It's about the overall quality of having to go with the B and C team when you don't have the understanding of the importance of always having a team. Dan Lipner. Dan, we lost Dan Lipner. Okay. Dan Lipner, you're on mute. Nope. No Dan Lipner. We'll keep going. Hey, uh, regarding this, I mean, because that was kind of a distraction uh, over what was happening in in the G20 summit, I mean, to the point where what really got, what was the really big headline coming out of the G20 over the weekend, or was there one? Alan Moore. Well, the, I think the big news had to do the with China, the, the China side, trade the, deal. The side meet that, that we've, that we've taken a pause um, in the, hostile uh, conversation with China um, to say, let's, let's, let's cool down here a little bit. Um, Let's make room for, for the big China telecom company Huawei to actually 
be involved at some level in the American market. That was a significant concession um, uh, from the president to, to China. And let's let's not talk about tariffs for the time being. Um, we want to get these uh, these conversations back on track. Those were that was very important, and the the, uh, the U.S. markets uh, like that. Uh, Diplomats oh. like that, right. economists can, like can that. Can you hear me now? We, yeah, we can. We can now, Dan. But uh, we, Alan we Moore, can, me... but we we can, but we don't want to, Dan. Um, <laughs> True. No, no, no. The rest no, of Alan the world Moore. hears you. If we're going to talk about Chinese <laughs> telecom, the idea that the president has suddenly given away some some of the issues for Huawei in exchange for only getting back the issues that he has created. Nothing more. There has not been an advancement of U.S. interests. There's only been an undoing of the interests that, that he has injured to the aid of Chinese interests. So let's not give the president any credit here. Yeah, and Alan Moore yeah. is a former. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Alan Moore. Hold on, Alan Moore, as a former secretary, as a former, as a former undersecretary for international trade. You know, we we've had Huawei in the crosshairs for the better part of a decade now, and yet it seems like, and this is these are comments coming from Republicans in Washington. It seems like the president sold out the you know the national interest and possibly national security by giving in to the Huawei conditions to Beijing is that fair well so it's a little confusing because because he's given them away twice now right we we were moving towards sanctions then we gave them up then we got tough again now we've loosened up if i were the chinese if i were Huawei i would be very suspicious about the reliability of the U.S. leadership when it comes to Huawei. So, so I don't. I think it's stupid what we're doing here. Okay, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's, what has the it's U.S. Counter- gotten that they didn't have prior to Trump's little little war? It, it's counterproductive. It's contrary to our interests. All my only point about about the you, the, the question was um, uh, before Dan so rudely interrupted was <laughs> what what came out of the G20. That was in any that was newsworthy or that was useful, and I simply said the lessening of tensions uh, on trade with the Chinese, which may allow us to get back to the to the real broad based uh, conversations that seem to be progressing. Um, Alan, uh, Alan, let me ask this question: Do you really think that Huawei was the stumbling point? That took us away from discussion tables with the Chinese. I think there. I think there's a whole host of, of stumbling points. That one happens to be particularly personal to the Chinese. Um, why? Why so pro- personal? And, why so personal and, if it's a privately held company? Well, it's not entirely privately owned. That's part of it. State-sanctioned control is part of it. Right. I think it's a state. You know, mo- most companies in in China have a heavy state involvement. And and it appears to be. I mean, this is the rap against Huawei is that it, that it is a vehicle for for spying on on countries and companies that uh, where the equipment exists. Whether that's how accurate that is or not, I don't know. But it's not a groundless uh, concern or fear. Um, but yeah, we shouldn't gloss over that. That's a real thing. No, no, I agree with that. And then there's a question of of, of national pride. Um, and, uh, so, 
So the, the, this president, I think, if you probably if you could get him privately, he'd say, oh, yeah, um, they really care about that one. I give it to him, I take it away. I give it to him, I take it away. Here's a little, pull a little. It, it's, right. it's sort of classic the way Donald Trump operates, but a very, very dangerous way to operate when it comes to international affairs, security matters, uh, trade arrangements between the, the two largest trading uh, uh, countries in the world. Um, but 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 the fact that we're that we're that we're now we we reduce tensions a bit. That's a good thing. But you know what? Hold on, hold on, everybody, hold on, everybody, hold on, there. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We got rid of the issues that the issues that Trump created. We have gotten no advancement on the policies that Trump has actually suggested with China. U.S. farmers are going to be the winners on this. That said, the U.S. farmers are going to be the winners on this for an issue that Donald Trump created. Well, no, but, but here's Dan, a, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 Dan. I don't want to relitigate all the conversations about all of the fundamental major issues America has in the trading relationship with China that are at the heart of our ongoing negotiations and that are really important. That. Name the that. that Donald Trump got from the Chinese. Name what? Name the concessions that Donald Trump got from the Chinese. Dan, this is part of a massive negotiation underway between Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, and his counterparts in China. There's all these pieces that fit together. It's, you don't do these one at a time. It's sort of all I nothing agree. is done until but, everything's done. But and it's Jiang going on. It's been on. one of those one items. What did we it's get going in exchange on. for the waffling it's, of this president? It, what did okay, we I'm going to mute both of you. I'm going to mute both of you. I don't know. I'm, but, I'm you muting know, both of you. The president did not create this. All right. I'm muting both of you right now. You're talking over each other. Let me get control of this back. Okay. I get that. Number one, Dan, I hear what you're saying, and I tend to agree with you. However, I I will say that this if, if we're going to do one arm, if we're going to do armchair quarterbacking of Chinese trade negotiations, that better be a really big armchair we're sitting in. That being the case, we got we got 15 more minutes in this episode, and I, I, I and I cannot not talk about the awkward tweet that came from the president, because we're going to be talking about Chinese trade going forward uh, over the next few weeks. There's still a lot to be hashed out, and we're still not sure exactly what happened uh, at the G20, what, what, what the exact deal is going to look like. That being said, there was an awkward tweet coming from the president that offered to meet the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, at the demilitarized zone up in the border of North Korea and South Korea. The invitation went out by tweet, and oddly enough, apparently, Kim Jong-un follows Donald Trump on Twitter, or at least the North <laughs> Korean government does. That being said, they accepted on Twitter. Uh, some quick 48-hour turnaround negotiations happened. Next That's thing we already know a lie. Is- the, the backstory has far more at play. Apparently, the Trumpies were already doing this via back channel. The Twitter exchange was BS. Uh, uh, Dan, okay. Dan, what do you know? Tell us what you know. No, this is what I know. This is what's been reported, uh, that that there have been leaks throughout suggesting that they had already been talking to the North Koreans about a DMZ visit when he was at the, G, at the G20. 
and lo and behold, it's occurred. Now, as far as the, fi- the finalized version of it, yeah, the fact that the, the White House and everyone else was caught flat-footed, arguably the North Koreans knew far more about this than anybody in the White House, which is scary in and of itself. However, it was 16 small steps for mankind and 16 small steps for a small president and a small administration. But, but Richard Bino, yes. here's the question. is: it, it seems to me that, you know, we, we saw what happened in Vietnam during the Vietnam summit, and that got broken down like a bad shotgun. Uh, we, we, we saw what happened in the initial shot of uh the in in the in the first meeting between uh Kim and Trump that got dropped like a bad transmission it, it just seems that every time you know and and now we've got a president who's walked into North Korea the first one ever and it just seems that every time Trump goes to meet with Kim or talks about Kim it further legitimizes Kim and his regime and it almost it almost seems like there's a, a reluctant acceptance of their tyrannical, murderous policies in this Hamlet country. Well, yeah, but you know what, though? I mean, it's also realpolitik. I think that, you know, you go back in history. I mean, Ford met with Saharto, the butcher, of, the butcher of, of East Timor, for example. I mean, we had this great relationship with the Shah of Iran. We had this great relationship with Pinochet in Chile. I mean, during World War II, I mean, we had an alliance with Joseph Stalin, who killed more people than Adolf Hitler. Nixon met with Mao Zedong in China, very similar. China and toasted, you know, the butcher of Beijing. I mean, I don't know how you deal in terms of what you, if, if your framework is simply that you won't do not that you want to denuclearize Korean Peninsula. I don't know how you do that without dealing with a person who is an autocrat. This is actually a part where I think Donald Trump is actually kind of right where, where Donald Trump is actually taking a different tack than I think traditional, you know, conservatism. I remember, I remember in 2007 there was a debate between. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama was asked if he would meet with any leader in, uh, w- without preconditions, and he said that he would. And I remember the next day, you know, Rudy Giuliani jumping all over him. You know, Hillary Clinton jumped all over, saying that this is, you know, this is impolitic. This isn't how we necessarily do it. Now Donald Trump's doing it, and now Sean Hannity and everyone else, and all, and all the, and certainly the conservative intelligentsia is saying that this is the right thing to do. And I think it actually is the right thing to do because I don't know how you do it without negotiations. And we've certainly, you know, the world isn't full of Democrats. The world is full of some Democrats and some autocrats, and you have to deal with the most truculent autocrats sometimes. Now, Alan Moore, is, I mean, is, is this, is, is, can we compare the relationship and the visit between Trump and Kim with Nixon and Mao? Well, I thought, Rich gave, I, I, I thought that, that, that Rich gave a really brilliant response there. He wasn't just picking Nixon and Mao. He was citing a whole, a whole litany of of thugs, um, autocrats, murderers who who we have had to find a way to deal with in our in our history. Um, what we've been doing with North Korea for the last twenty to thirty years hasn't worked very well. I've certainly joined in the criticism of this president when he started, but I also said from the very beginning. But let's watch and see what happens. It's not all bad here, and let's acknowledge that. We've had debates uh, uh, on this show about whether uh, whether we got anything with uh, this outreach, with the, the two and now three meetings between these guys. And I kept pointing out that, that, they've, that they've 
not tested another nuclear weapon. They stopped but, testing the longer-range ballistic uh, missiles. That, there's no way to not test the nuclear weapon. There's no way to not talk, uh, refer to that as as a positive. Is it enough? Is it worth it? That that remains to be seen. But the but the level of tension but between them right. and us has has been tempered at least temporarily. The, the, you know, it's a dangerous yep. uh, it's a dangerous game uh, to play. But but as Rich points out. We're dealing with dangerous figures Absolutely. all the time and, yeah, and unreliable right. folks. Um, Dan Lipner, and- hold on, let, let you go to Dan Lipner. Dan, go ahead. The stated position of the United States through multiple administrations is no nuclear weapons for, for North Korea. Is there anyone on this show that believes the Trump administration is making any advancement toward that stated goal? I would suggest the clear answer is no. Well, the, the, okay. Alan, hold on, hold so on. Dan, Alan, Dan, so Dan is murdered. Go ahead, Alan Moore. I mean, I go ahead. Progress, you know, in Nicholsworth. Um, we haven't lost ground. Like I think we we would have been at, at great risk of of of, uh, of doing. So. This is a this is a story that still has to be told, um, right? Uh, in, in the in, in, in the words of our president, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I think what Dan's getting at, and I, I tend to I, I tend to agree a little bit with Dan. I see what you're saying, and I also agree with the fact that you know everybody criticized Nixon when he was meeting with Mao. Everybody criticized uh, the uh, the administration when we brought the Shah of Iran to Houston for heart surgery. All of that being the case, the reality still dictates is the, the, the days of uh, an, an unnuclearized North Korea are gone. We're not going to see that again. And we're not. And right now, the only thing that gives North Korea legitimacy is the fact that they have a nuclear capability. As developed or undeveloped as it is, it's still a nuclear capability and it seems like every time we have Trump go in there, it, Trump is getting played. It, it, we don't see any positive non-nuclear uh, or denuclearization of the North coming out of any of these discussions. It almost seems like we're acquiescing to the fact that, you know what, they're a nuclear power right now. All right. Well, we'll live with that. It's also very – it's very early, too. I mean, I'm reminded of, I guess, when um, – you know, I think the last time when Trump actually left and then and left with nothing, you know, I guess that certainly his supporters will say this is like, you know, Reagan at Reykjavik leaving and then coming back and then eventually getting an agreement with the Soviet Union. You know, what's going to happen here? I think it's we're in such we're still in kind of the inchoate stages of this relationship. And, you know, I mean, certainly North Korea. They thought this is you're right. This is exactly what they've wanted with a relationship. When Dennis Rodman went over there, you know, he gave um, when Dennis Rodman went over there during the Obama administration, um, Kim Jong Un gave him his phone number and said, please have Obama call me. He went he came back home and Dennis Rodman begged. He beseeched him, President Obama, to at least give him a call. Obama wouldn't give him a call. Trump actually gave him a phone call, which is quite something. Yeah, I I, I didn't mean to make anybody cry over that. Justin, you can't. None of us knows whether that peninsula will stay nuclearized. We do not know the answer to that. I'm not saying they won't, 
but we don't know. It's 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 a story still to be told. Right, it, but Alan Moore, it, at the same point, at the same time, you can also make the argument that there, you know, there's an expectation of the American people, and and there's a lot at stake. The, the you know the Japanese are are looking at this very closely. Our allies in the region, including South Korea, are looking at this very closely. You know, the, the, what we don't see is outward progress towards denuclearization. What we still see is a nuclear capability in the hands of a tyrannical leader like Kim. And, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, I find him more dangerous, more unstable than his father and his grandfather before him. It, 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 this is a very, very delicate situation, and I, so, and I get concerned that, you know, we, we just aren't bringing guns to a gunfight. We're bringing Dixie straws. Well, what would you have us do, Dustin, since you don't like what Trump's doing? Did, did you like uh, the Obama year of strategy, the George W. Bush, I, the Bill Clinton? Look, I, 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 I will say this. I will say this. If we want to really get down to, if we really want to get down to the Bill Clinton strategy had this, evidence of success. Hold, hold on, Dan. Let me get to that. Hold on. If you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of this, Alan, and we've only got, we've only got three more minutes to go. So I'll be trying to be quick. If you look at the, oh, we got four minutes. Thank you, Rob, the engineer. If you want to look at the six party talks, the six party talks were effective. We didn't see the capabilities and the intelligence community even said we didn't see the nuclear capabilities that we had until we broke down those discussions in the six party talks. Once we did that and we started inserting us in, we gave the power to the North Koreans and we took the advantage away from us. We are the golden ticket. And as long as we had people like Switzerland and other allies trying to say, look, you want to get in front of the kingmaker, you're going to have to make concessions. That seemed to work. Now that we've given them, we've given they don't have to buy the milk anymore. We've given them the milk. They're milking us like a dairy cow. What concessions? Milk? What are you even talking about, Justin? I'm not even getting, you're trying to make these analogies and you're now talking about giving them milk. Um, we, we, you know, no, no, no. I'm talking. I'm, I'm talking about the fact that number one, they still. Every time we've met with with North Korea, we've seen them. Th- this idea that they are not doing any development is absolutely and categorically wrong. You talk to anybody in the intelligence community, they'll tell you they are still working towards developing and working an active nuclear arsenal program, contrary to the rhetoric that they're feeding our State Department and our president. That's categorically correct. And we've seen well, what, no consent. All I, said, all I said was they are not testing nuclear weapons at the moment. They are not testing long-range ballistic missiles. And they were. They have two tested years ago. ballistic missiles, though. Since what? Trump's last visit, he said that the, the nuclear weapons thing is correct. However, I stand by my previous statement. After their their old mountain suffered from tired mountain syndrome, something I did not know existed prior to uh, the the uh, North Koreans stopping use of it. The idea that they don't have someplace else to test nuclear weapons—it's not a huge country. They don't have a New Mexico to go to. So the question is, can they even test if they wanted to? Like nuclear weapons are a big deal to test. So, and by the way, the idea that they're Dan, not testing right now is not a big deal. Dan, we got we got one more minute, and and this is something that we're going to bring up again, Alan. I, trust me, I appreciate what you're saying. I I hear what you're saying. 
It's just I would like to see more coming out of these discussions instead of photo ops, really glorified photo ops. But no, I, I I'd agree. Like to see something coming out of these discussions in favor of the United right. States. What that, well, that's it's gotten. Yeah, well, we'll we'll talk about this in another program because we've only got about one minute left, and I, I want to make a, a, a quick statement. Uh, over the over the past forty eight hours, um, Detective Lou Alvarez uh, has been an advocate of for the nine eleven victims compensation fund, the VCF, and Lou Alvarez, a detective with the NYPD for many years, spent many, many months working on the pile after 9-11 with his comrades from NYPD, Port Authority PD, FDNY. Um, Lou Alvarez came to uh, national attention about uh, two and a half, three weeks ago when he gave testimony before the uh, House Judiciary Committee, and he was in the same room uh, uh, as the testimony that uh, comedian John uh, Stewart gave, which went viral, as it should have. Uh, Lou Alvarez has tirelessly sacrificed his own health. He has sacrificed his own well-being and sacrificed, you know, providing for uh, his family because of the fact that he has dedicated the last years of his life making sure that everybody else did not have to go through the pain, the suffering, and the financial stress that he had to go through. Um, over the weekend, uh, Detective Lou Alvarez uh, lost his life. He lost his fight with uh, pancreatic cancer. And, uh, and in the last interview that he gave 48 hours before his passing, uh, he said he had one legacy, and that was to give voice to those victims who needed to see, who needed to hear, and need to understand how important that fund is. Um, in, in his last act of true dedication and courage, Detective Lou Alvarez sent his, um, <clears throat> sent his badge to uh, Mitch McConnell, who arguably has not been the greatest advocate, but I think he's had an epiphany. Lou Alvarez sent his badge to Mitch McConnell as a sign of, as a token of fidelity as a token of confidence that he will do the right thing. Um, it looks like it'll pass. It looks like it'll pass the Senate. I hope it does. I hope Senator, I hope of majority of will. McConnell, I, they, they, we've been down will. this road. We've been down this road before and we've had this fight before. I don't trust anything when it comes to the nine 11 victims fund. Yeah. I, I, I hope I, to God. I hope to God. Well, the, the John Stewart position that his grandstanding appropriate grandstanding in favor of the nine 11 responders consistently over the years has been because of the slow pace of things going through Congress. And you could lay the, the, the blame at the foot of either party. And I'm not going to take, There's even blame. though I've suggested which party is more to blame, but that's I it. Absolutely, that's a real fight. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree that there's blame on both parties to go around. And, and, and the blame is just reprehensible. This should not be a question. This should not be something that's open for debate. This should pass. I'm hoping it does. But the reason why I bring this up is I just want to take a minute and talk about a great man, a great servant to the community, a public servant to those in the city of New York and those who have given up their lives in defense of others. Uh, 
we remember Detective Lou Alvarez for the great work he did. On behalf, uh, with that, Dan Alessabrano, with that, uh, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, uh, Richard Bino, thank you. Rob, thank you. Rob, the engineer, thank you very much for keeping us honest. We will be back, as we do always. We'll be in studio for the next episode, I promise. Uh, we can't keep uh, Rob un, uh, unsupervised there in the cage. Uh, you can listen to us on Twitter, or you can listen to us live on Twitter. You can also download us as a podcast on your favorite podcasting services like Google Podcasts, Spreaker, and iHeartRadio. Have a great week, America. We'll see you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.